I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Jonathan Edwards, who's the Plaid Cymru Member of Parliament for Carmarthen East and Dynevor. Jonathan, you are a Carmarthen lad, aren't you? Yes, uh, very proud, uh, proud of that, and I'm uh, hugely fortunate to be able to represent my home communities. I think far too much in politics these, these days we have people who are parachuted into various uh, seats and uh, there might be some advantages uh, to that. But I think it's extremely helpful if you um, come from the area that you represent uh, because I think it gives you, a, you know, an added advantage in terms of what are the aspirations of those communities, uh, the requirements of those communities, and in terms of an ownership of the role because you know a role of an elected member I think is far more than just being somebody who represents in an elected body, there's also that community leadership role, and I think it really helps you come from those, the communities that you seek to represent. So the, the village that you're from, what is the sort of makeup of the village? What's its history? Caplendre, uh, probably doubled in size since I was, uh, since I was born, but uh, traditionally a, a mining village, uh, the Lindsay Colliery. Uh, which then linked into the next village, the Kungudi Colliery. And uh, as we often seen in, in the South Wales Valleys, how these mines were all interlinked. And then lately, when I was growing up, um, the open cast was a big, big feature of industry around the communities that I represented. And essentially, if you look, if you go up to the Betos Mountain, overlooking uh, the upper half of the Amman Valley, uh, you look down on the villages, villages of uh, Penabank, Saron, Penagros, Llandabie, Capelendre up to Croissants, then at the top of the Gwendraith Valley. It's a, it's a patchwork, it resembles more of a sort of like a US plain as opposed to what you would traditionally expect to see in, in either the South Wales Valleys or in the West Oak Wales. Huge areas which have been used to extract surface coal and the, the villages running through them. Until you go up and see the, the, the size of it the, you, uh, and, and look down at the top of the Amman Valley, it's only then that you really get an appreciation of the size of the open cast that were developing in, in those in those years. Because obviously when you're just living in the middle of it and you're driving around you know, from various villages, you don't quite get the grasp of the scale of it. Because it's uh, an interesting part of Wales, isn't it? Because it's basically the crossroads between industrial South Wales and rural West Wales. Absolutely. It's a frontier community. You can look at it one of two ways. You can either look at it at the, as the entrance to uh, rural West and North Wales or the entrance to the South Wales Valleys because obviously for, once you enter the Almond Valley or the Gwendraith Valley, the Welsh Caulfield Valleys extend all the way down more or less to the English border uh, to, to, to the east. But of course in terms of the coal that was extracted from our communities, by far the best coal in the world, the anthracite Caulfield, and uh, we're, we're extremely proud of our uh, mining heritage. So, as a young lad, what was your political approach? Was it you came from a political family? Well, my father was a, a trade union shop steward, and I suppose it'd be fair to say that we come from a, came from a traditional uh, labour-leaning family. Uh, but for, for my father, I think the '79 referendum was a big event in his political life, and I think he became disillusioned with the Labour Party because of the way they dealt with that referendum. And it effectively, although it was the policy of the Labour government, they campaigned effectively on the ground against. Uh, devolution to Wales, and he gradually moved towards uh, towards Plaid as many uh, families have done in the Almond Valley in particular, in the Gwendraith Valley. Journey, of course, taken by uh, Adam Price's family, my pa- my parliamentary leader, uh, my my party leader, 
of course, who lives only a, 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 who was brought up a mile down the road in Ticros. Uh, and he became a primary councillor in the late 90s, uh, memory serves correct. I remember I went to university in 94, and you know, I'd basically, I basically was a Thatcher's child. The minor strike had been a big issue, obviously, in, in the middle of the 80s. I was only eight at the time, so I don't think I can claim, as Adam can, who's a few years older than me, that this was a, that was a major event in shaping his political outlook. But I, was, I became a, a, you know, acutely aware, as that struggle went on during the year, of the impact uh, and the power of a state and the power of the of the British state on Welsh communities, and I think that did have a sublime or a, you know an impact somewhere in the back of my mind. But I think the biggest issue for me is uh, I went to university, uh, Aberystwyth, the University of Wales, Aberystwyth, after finishing in uh, my Sarafa, as it was my Gwentworth as it is now, in uh, Cefnithin, and I attended a Swaggamagri Damran, the Amford Welsh School, uh, for primary. Was you know I was quite I was. I'd been brought up as a Thatcher's child, and I was obviously I was very excited at the prospect of a Labour government in Westminster, and the disappointment of one of its first acts being the introduction of tuition fees. Well, that was around the ninety-seven, so I was coming to the end of my degree at that stage. But it had been a bit of a live topic in the years leading up to that, and I felt that it was a complete abandonment of working-class communities. The fees were set at a relatively low level; I think it was about a thousand and a half at the time. But coming from the background that I came from, a very working-class background. It's the it's the psychological impact of fees of that nature, and I if those would have been in place in in ninety four when I finished my A levels, I went to university. I probably wouldn't have gone to university just because I wouldn't want to put my parents through that financial burden. Uh, and despite all the talk of uh, you know maintenance grants or loans or you know bursaries or whatever to try and mitigate it, I think from a working class background, um, I, I just couldn't believe that policy. And that was one of the first things that the, the Labour government, after 20 years of Thatcherism, would bring in. And uh, I firmly nailed my colours to the Master of Ply Company then. Um, and uh, I haven't looked back. So did you join Plaid when you were at Aberystwyth? Or? Yeah, I think university was a, you know, a huge impact on me. I was living in Pantacalin Hall, which is a very famous Welsh language hall in Aberystwyth. Probably created more nationalists than any, <laughs> any other establishment in the, in the country. But I remember attending Plaid Cymru meetings, and it was in the Coops in Aberystwyth, which is a famous pub. And there were a number of individuals there. David Tristan, of course, a former chair of Plaid Cymru, some great intellectual giants, including the late Phil, Phil Williams. And, you know, Phil was a professor at the time, you know, a polymath, if there ever was one in Wales, a huge figure in the national movement. And we were sat round a table, and I had no idea who this guy was, but to be in the presence of a man like that and to hear him talk and the passion and his... Uh, range of ideas was hugely influential and then of course probably one of the major educational influences on my life was now Professor Richard Wynne Jones who was in the Welsh Governance Centre in Cardiff um, it, was a, it was a pleasure to be under his guidance for three years as well as a, a teacher in Maesir Arfa who was a North Wales called Erin Maddock-Jones who now teaches in Bromarthen School I better give him a plug because he lives in Slangardog in my constituency but uh, he was a North Wales and it took took me the first six months to understand how we spoke and <laughs> what he was saying. Uh, but those those uh, influences, learning about the, the, the huge depth of intellectual uh, knowledge behind the national movement, uh, reading pamphlets like um, you know, the, the Economics of Self, uh, of Welsh Self-Government, which was written by D.J. Davis in 1931 and his wife, Dr. Noel Davis. And D.J., of course, came from Carmel, which wasn't far from where I was born, about um, six miles. That, how that pamphlet still resonates today uh, about the power 
and the distorting impact of the London Financial Centre on the Welsh economy, those lessons are still some of the ones that we need to learn now. And what did you study, actually? Uh, yeah, hi- history and international politics, and then I uh, did a master's degree in international history in Aberystwyth also, specialising at the end of the Cold War, on the end of, end of the Cold War, and uh, American foreign policy. But I only did it because I wanted another year in Aberystwyth. <laughs> <laughs> and after you graduated, what did you get up to then? Well, I, f- I faced a period of uh, where I was uh, out of work for a while. It's a very debilita- debilitating thing because throughout your educational progress, you know, you're, you're part of the work of a school or a university is to instill some confidence in you as an individual. And then I, I found myself unemployed for a number of months. Uh, and then, of course, there'd just been, you know, the historic referendum win for, uh, for um, Wales to create a National Assembly in 97. And the first elections were due, due to be held in May 99. And uh, Roger Glyn Thomas, who became the first Assembly member for Clarny St. Edward, asked me to help run his campaign with the uh, long-standing uh, Plaid Cymru organiser, uh, Tidier Jones, uh, in, uh, for that election. So I started in January and uh, threw myself into it. Uh, we won, and I found myself then being employed by uh, Rodri uh, and uh, being given the job to uh, elect Adam Price for the Westminster seat in 2008. And one, uh, which was a you know a two-year campaign. We were very aware that we had a very precious uh, and incredible talent in Adam. You know, it was a major national objective for the party to increase its Westminster representation. And uh, you know, we were standing against a long-standing Labour member of Parliament, Dr. Alan Williams, who had taken perhaps a reverse triangulation strategy to come out of East Devon and had gone out of his way to upset. Uh, people of uh, our political persuasion uh, with some of his uh, uh, positions. He was anti-Welsh language education. Uh, absolutely, he was anti-Welsh language education and uh, you know, really a clever strategy for the, the Labour Party surely would have been to in, you know, embrace it and try, sort of, try, sort of uh, lay their, ta- uh, their tanks on our lawns a bit. But uh, he was a, a figure that obviously you know, was a bit of a, a target. Uh, we had an outstanding candidate in, in Adam Price who came from the, the Yaman Valley Coalfield you know, not a traditional, perhaps, Plaid Cymru candidate. Uh, we were trying something different, and it was a huge honour to work with him, uh, and then build on the work that Roger Glynn was doing as well. Uh, and then we, I think it was one of only eight seats that the Labour Party lost in Tony Blair's second landslide. And I think, you know, of all the things I've achieved in politics, including uh, some of my personal achievements, that's the one that really was the sweetest moment, was winning that seat. And, uh, you know, we've built from there, really. What has been the secret about holding that seat in successive elections, not just at the Assembly, but also at Westminster? Because, as you say, I mean, it was a Labour seat for a long time. OK, Gwynvor Evans represented it decades ago, but then it was Labour for quite a long time. What is it that actually made made the change, would you say? It's definitely, you know, it's been... In the elections that I fought, uh, definitely in 2015, the second election, perhaps also when Adam stood down in 2010, it was probably Labour's number one target seat in Wales, you know. Uh, definitely 2015, because they were desperate to get rid of me in 2015. They launched their Welsh campaign in, in Armonford and they threw the kitchen sink at it in an effort to uh, to get rid of me. I must have upset them over the, over the years. But I think the key to our success is that, uh, in, definitely in, case of, in, in the case of Adam and myself, we're both working-class boys from the constituency. And therefore, it's been an easy transition for families who are Labour voters 
they can identify themselves with what we stand for politically and the fact that we're you know obviously local candidates and then you've had that big shift in that industrial half of the constituency and then of course in the rural half of the constituency probably can they still pose very well to this day where the Labour Party is basically non-existent. So I think after you'd worked for Rodri and effectively Adam as well for, for a while. You went off, didn't you, and worked for Citizens Advice, didn't you? Yeah, I, I had a stint working for the party centrally, uh, running into the 2017 election, uh, leading on strategic matters, working with some fantastic staff members like uh, Alan Sherman, who's now working for Dur Cymru. Guarante, still working for the party, but is a, you know, a great election organiser, understanding where you need to focus your resources. We've created the campaigns unit with about four or five of us working there, Anna and, and, and Rodri as well, young, young people just come through university, so there's a very keen team there. Adam was running the election, of course, director of elections, and then we formed the Government of Wales. And I think then after that, I was in a stage where basically I was facing political burnout, not really perhaps lacking the motivation for the next challenge. I had the opportunity to go and work for Citizens Advice Company, uh, leading leading them in, ter- uh, in terms of uh, public affairs and public re- relations. And it was a, a great two years uh, working for them, uh, working under Fran Target, who's recently re- retired. Uh, a depth of knowledge in, in social policy and the work they were undertaking and influencing the, the government of Wales at the time, where Plycombe, of course, were, were in government, which was uh, useful. I remember, you know, Adam... You know, we, were, we were in the height of the expenses scandal and Adam had served two terms and he was talking about that really he'd lost the drive to be down here in, in, in London and perhaps was thinking of standing down and I, I remember trying to persuade him over many months telling him, well, don't you think that I'm going to stand in your place, right? So, you know, you've got a duty to the national cause, you know, it's your responsibility to carry, carry on for as long as possible, you're by far the best politician that we have in the party. It wasn't really something that I was thinking about in terms of re-entering politics. I was, I was really happy living in Cardiff, you know, a, a, you know, a good work-life balance. Most of my friends had moved from Aberystwyth down to Cardiff. And then Adam phoned one morning saying, right, I'm announcing at midday that I'm, uh, or one o'clock or whatever, that I'm standing down. I'd made my mind up within half an hour that these opportunities in life don't come around very often. Because over the years I've spoken to many people, incredible politicians in Plaid Cymru, people like Peter Hughes Griffiths, could easily have been a politician at the highest level and had just decided for family reasons or for whatever never to take the opportunities when they came. That if I didn't attempt to win the nomination on this occasion, perhaps the, the opportunity would never ever come again. And it was a rel- relatively simple decision then to put my name forward to win the nomination and, and then to fight that election in, in 2010. And then, you know, it's been the, the biggest honour of my life to represent my home communities down here in Westminster. Clyde, of course, is a very small party in Westminster terms. How do you go about seeking to make an impact? You know, I think the, the game is changing very, very quickly in terms of politics. What we're seeing at the moment, of course, uh, since Brexit, is that party discipline is breaking down completely. And politicians are working increasingly across the divide. In, in Brexit in particular, there are separate whipping groups on different policy positions. So, for instance, I represent Plaid Cymru on the whipping group that's working for a final say referendum as a way of the only way of getting away getting out of this mess that we've uh, found ourselves in uh, and that includes politicians from across the political political spectrum so i think from a from a plight commission perspective i think you know we've, we've recently we, you know we've lived in environments where there haven't been huge majorities 
Uh, and when you're in that sort of like hung parliament territory, then obviously your the votes of maybe a parliamentary party of three or four are magnified. Intrinsically, what I've decided from the very start since I've been elected that to gain maximum impact and influence, you know, the best thing I could do down here is to use this place as a platform for the whatever policy positions we're trying to project and to move forward the national question. And instead of serving the institution, you know, that I, th- I don't think there should be an onus on Plaid Cymru with the number of members of parliament that we have to try and, you know, fill committees and, you know, to, to make this place work. That's not our role. Our role is to use what's available here to highlight issues which are important to Wales. And in the early days, of course, uh, you know, when the SNP had six MPs and... Um, you know, we had we had three at the time, and then there was Caroline Lucas, of course, the Green, who's a very good friend of mine. You know, we formed a group of ten. The approach we've taken down here is always to take a non-tribal approach and to uh, work with whoever supports a common agenda, and I think that's a far healthier form of politics. So, obviously, in recent years, the political agenda has been completely dominated by Brexit. Your position is very clear, Ply's position is very clear in wanting to remain in the EU. At this moment, what prospect do you think there is of Britain remaining in the EU? You know, obviously we've gone through a period of the last few weeks with the Tory leadership election, but the debate within the Tory party is far divorced from political reality. And I think there's going to be a clash between reality and, you know, the the sort of narrative that's been down here over the last few, few weeks. And essentially, you know, the situation hasn't changed fundamentally. Boris Johnson, he will face exactly the same problems as Theresa May. And then I think he faces the situation, you know, how does he, find it, how does he navigate his way through the House of Commons? And I think there's, there's, there's three likely scenarios. Do the ERG and the DUP and enough Labour MPs just decide we've got to get this out of the way and they vote for whatever he comes back just to get anything through? Uh, if that doesn't happen, then he's faced with a simple choice. Does he go for a general election, which is full of political risks for him, because obviously the Brexit party, unless he comes to an arrangement with them, would eviscerate the, the Conservative vote. If he can't come to some sort of arrangement with the Brexit party, then uh, you know, a final say referendum is the only way out of it. And I don't think an election solves anything, to be perfectly honest with you. I think getting something through, based on what the former Prime Minister uh, had negotiated to get through, just, just doesn't really solve the problem in the long term because it's, uh, the, all the big decisions will be taken during the implementation period and the, the British state will be in a position of extreme weakness because he would have left the EU and would then be a direct competitor and the EU is far more powerful you know and it's, it's a, they got all the cards and I think the British, British state will find itself in a very vulnerable situation as of course would Welsh, Welsh communities. Or then, does he do the, the, which I think is the only way out of this, is to go to the people, listen, this is what Brexit actually means. You know, it's far, di- far divorced from what, we, uh, what you were told during the referendum. What do you want to do? You know, do you actually want to go ahead with this? Or do you want to stick to the deal that you've got, uh, got at the moment? Difficult to imagine Boris Johnson saying something like that. Well, I think it comes down to one or two things. P- politically, if he can do a deal with the Brexit party, then I, I can see why an election might be enticing. Because the Labour Party are in a complete shambolic state, you know they're on the, uh, on 20% of the polls. There is no way. I think the Corbyn fad is gone. I think they would be extremely exposed in any general election. And if he does a deal with Farage or an understanding or whatever they come to, you're in a position then when you have a realigned right, which is on 40% uh, in the polls, in a far stronger position. So 
if he can come to some sort of arrangement or understanding with Farage, and if he said he's going to embrace no deal in his manifesto, then you know, you can see how that works. Then I can see an election might work. If he can't, I can't see somebody who spent his whole life trying to get to where he's going to be in a week's time on the steps of 10 Downing Street, willing to risk it all away on an election. Even somebody with the self-assurance, some would say arrogance, of uh, Mr Johnson, I find it incredibly difficult that he would risk it all in an election where the, where the Brexit party are a huge threat. Because if they're, if they're still competing with the Tory party, they hurt the Tory party far more than the Labour party. What impact does Brexit, whatever may happen, have on your core cause of Welsh independence? Well, I think people are watching the complete sh- shambles down here in Westminster. And, you know, uh, coming to the conclusion that perhaps you know this place isn't the best place to make decisions in the interests of Welsh communities. And then once you come to that conclusion, it's very simple to start joining the, the dots towards thinking that uh, we need to, uh, at least a huge realignment of the British state towards some sort of confederal uh, or federal model, or actually towards the ultimate step, which would be uh, uh, independence. I think one thing that Brexit has clearly outlined, I think you know, they had, they had a clear choice down here in Westminster after the referendum result, in terms of the, the national question, in, not only in Wales, in Scotland and Northern Ireland as well, in terms of the British constitution, right then. Now we're leaving these huge, these very important European frameworks. We're going to have to create British state-wide frameworks. What are we going to do? Are we going to do it on the basis of right? We, the, you know, the, the, this partnership of equals narrative that they have. Wales is an equal partner in the British state, or Scotland's an equal partner in the British state. You know, the four nations and you know the, all the narrative that you have from politicians down in Westminster. Are we going to actually create common uh, UK frameworks whereby the four constituent parts of the British state are, are on the same level? Or are we going to go for direct Westminster control? And they've gone for direct Westminster control. And, you know, the Labour Party in Wales has been complicit, complicit in that as well, in returning a range of powers, albeit temporarily. But if anyone thinks those powers are going to come back, I think, you know, it's going to be a bit of a tough fight. The, the Westminster parties and Labour politicians down here in Westminster are amongst the worst, believe that all these big decisions should be made in Westminster. Now, that makes leaves our constitutional status, the, the powers that we already got in Wales, under a huge threat. We've seen that with the Shared Prosperity Fund, as it's called, in terms of you know, structural funding. You know, uh, it leaves the, 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 the a settlement that, been, that has been endorsed in two referenda in Wales completely vulnerable. But I think it also leaves Wales as a country, you know, clearly shows that we're going to be completely reliant on Westminster to make decisions for us. And I think people then have to make a, a blatant decision. You know, I can easily see over the next 10, 15 years in Wales, Especially, you know, the whole Brexit thing has been driven by anger. And they, there is no interest for these people to, to pacify that. Where are they going to channel the anger? You know, well, I can see it going towards our democratic institutions in Wales. That's where they're going to be channeling the, channeling the anger next, especially the right of the political spectrum. So you're in a situation where by the middle ground, you know, the sort of uh, consensus that is, has run re- relatively smoothly in a Welsh context since the 97 referendum, 20 years of devolution, I think devolution is under attack. And I think the middle ground is evaporating in all s- sorts of spheres and it will be on the national question. And then you're in a situation whereby you're either going to be with the Assembly being abolished, returning to complete direct control for Westminster or independence. And that's ve- very likely. And I, I think the lack of leadership from the Labour Party as the governing party from Wales is making that scenario far more likely. And I think that's why independence now is you know, becoming a more mainstream political, p- 
political discussion point within our country. What can you see coming from the next assembly election in 2021? Well, I, I think there's a yearning for change in, in, in Wales. The major problem when it comes to changing the government in Wales is that the electoral system is heavily weighted towards one political party. And I suppose then it becomes, you know, obviously anything to do with politics, elected politics is a, is a numbers game. And I think, you know, from our perspective, I think we, we have got, got by far the strongest candidate for first minister. Uh, and the campaign will be very much weighted towards running a trade-off or a fight-off between the current First Minister, Mark Drakeford, uh, and Adam Price. And, you know, I, Mark's a, a lovely guy. I've only spoken to him on a few occasions. You know, he's a very intelligent person. It doesn't seem to me that the role of, of a leader of a nation sits very comfortably on his shoulders. Whereas I think Adam is in a position whereby, we, you know, he's been born for this. Uh, he's a man of great vision, great empathy, uh, and I think he's going to be, uh, you know, a, a terrific trump card for us going into that election. Well, of course, one of the problems always in Wales is this uh, issue of the electoral system, which is partly proportional, but not wholly so. And therefore, you have a system where Labour starts as the favourite, and then the opposition to Labour is split, isn't it? I mean, it's split between the uh, Conservatives and Plaid, and then we just don't know what will happen in two years' time so far as the Brexit party is concerned, whether they're still in place or what level of support they might get. What scenario do you envisage happening that would bring Adam Price into the First Minister's office? And would that be, in your view, as the leader of a minority administration? Because there are many people who are implied who would say that the idea of having a coalition with the Conservatives is completely out of the question. I think it would be increasingly difficult to see a coalition with the Conservative Party looking at the sort of path that they seem to be on at the moment. Reading some of the stuff over the last few months, they seem to be going anti-Welsh language, anti-Welsh powers. You know, I just don't see... If you're going to have a coalition, it has to be sort of some understanding of a policy platform that's sustainable. When you're in government, there's a lot of pressure. You know? I think the key objective for us is to become, be the main party. That's the, the the number one objective, but I think what's, what we're seeing in uh, Brecon and Radnor is potentially could be very interesting, whereby you're seeing a collaboration in the by-election between Plaid Cymru, the Liberal Democrats, and the Greens. And if Brexit is still a live issue uh, around there, if you're in the middle of an implementation period when the debate is between what we would call a soft Brexit, which is staying within the frameworks, and then a Conservative and even the Labour Party want to be outside the economic frameworks, you know, I would imagine the Liberal Democrats would be far closer to our viewpoint and, and the Greens as well then, you know, you can see potentially joint working at that level. But, you know, we've seen huge growth in the, in the Plaid figures uh, and the polls uh, are, are, are very good at the moment. We had a very strong European election where we defeated the Labour Party. I think there's a yearning for change in Wales. And indeed, you know, what I, what I would tell Labour voters who are you know, pro-devolution, I think the biggest danger to devolution is if we have another Labour government. Because it's starting to get a bit like Japan, isn't it, where there's only one party in power all the, all the time. And I think in that scenario, there could be big, big dangers uh, to people becoming disillusioned with the devolution project. So I think we really need to change the government in Wales. I think it'll actually do Labour good as well. You know, a chance for them to reboot some of their ideas. They look very tired and stale. You know, It's very much a sort of managerial strategy for the country rather than a governing strategy. And there's a big difference in that. You know, We're not moving forward at all. We desperately need to change our government. 
And, you know, I think uh, people will face a simple choice. Do they want uh, Mark Drakeford and Labour Party leading Wales or do they want Adam Price and Plaid Cymru leading Wales after the next election? At what point would you see yourself moving from Westminster to Cardiff Bay? Well, that's a very interesting question. Uh, I, when I got elected, or when I was standing before I got elected, I said I'd do 10 years maximum in Westminster. But you know, I've already done nine years. I'm in the 10th year already and it's gone extremely, extremely quickly. You know, I think it would be the highest highest political honour to represent my home communities in my own national parliament and, and I remember you interviewing me before I got elected and I said that really what I wanted to see was the devolution of uh, taxation powers and social protection powers because then you're in a position to shape your economy and social policy in particular uh, and you know we have done there have been some victories along the last few years in terms of that I think we've got a long way to go We've got a far inferior settlement to what's been offered to Scotland and Northern Ireland. I think there's still a big, big job of work to do down here to fight Welsh interest. And if I'm perfectly honest, I think my style of politics, which is uh, more based on being able to react quickly to events and uh, you know fight the national cause, stand up very quickly on issues and answer to, answer to them, rather than getting very dug down in deep, detailed policy, which is more what tends to happen in the Assembly. I think I'm probably better suited here. I can't see any scenario in which I'm going to be left to come home, if that your, answers your question, Martin. So, uh, <laughs> Unless I'm kicked out by, my own, by, by, by the people that come out of the East. So look, like Nigel Farage, you are campaigning for your own extinction. Yeah, well, I think there's something honest about that, isn't it? Although I think the way we go about it is slightly different. I think that the, the disrespect that he shows Europe and European uh, colleagues, I, you know, I'd be ashamed if I was doing those sort of antics. You know? I've never sung God Save the Queen, but I would never turn my back on it. Uh, and I thought, you know, the sort of behaviour that we're seeing by the Brexit party in, in Europe is completely di uh, disgraceful. So, um, yeah, but I think there is fundamentally something honest. You know, I'm not, we're not, we're not doing this job to line our own pockets. We're essentially doing this job to get uh, made redundant. And uh, I, I can't wait for the day, Martin. I think uh, I look forward to that. I'll, I'll return to Commandershire and start growing some potatoes. Jonathan Edwards, thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.